If you would like to turn with me in the copy of the Word of God to Matthew 23, we're continuing now into that passage as we make a transition in the section here, as Jesus now addresses the scribes and the Pharisees directly. Before he was talking about them, now he is talking to them. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 through verse 15 in this first section of woes. Now hear the word of the Lord. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallow your name in the preaching of this your word. O Christ, our Savior and Lord, who sits high upon the throne, whose train fills the temple, we pray that our ears would be attentive to your decrees and your Lordship in our lives this day. O Spirit, open our hearts that we may hear with the ears of faith that which you have penned through holy men of old, that we might hear the word of God this day fresh. And so we ask that you would speak to us and illuminate the text now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of the risen Christ, and so be changed from glory to glory into his likeness. No God, if there is one here this day who does not truly know you, May this day be the day of salvation, that not only the angels in heaven may glory, but we might rejoice with them here upon the earth for what great things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's in this part of the country that often, even in this time of the year, that we have these fierce thunderstorms. It was not long ago, over the course of the winter, I believe, that I remember we had such a thunderstorm that came through with, with high winds and with lots of lightning, the most lightning I've ever seen. Strike after strike with clap of peal of thunder after, after clap and peal of thunder. It was quite fierce for the time in which it was pressing upon us with the rains and the wind and the lightning and the, and the storm sound and all of our senses were invigorated and we often take for shelter in those kinds of times when we have the fear of God pressed upon us and we hear His voice speaking. It is in the likeness of that thunderstorm that we are here in Matthew 23. 
We have now between verses 13 and the end of this chapter, eight particular woes that Jesus is confronting directly the scribes and the Pharisees. A woe is difficult to translate and even somewhat difficult to understand in our language. It is a term that is connected with sorrow and grief and even horror and disaster. And when God utters a woe, it actually includes two things. First of all, it includes that that gravity of disaster and horror and grief and sorrow, but that is coupled with a second concept of a divine sentence, a divine verdict and a sentence of condemnation over people. It's a fearful term. And these woes in chapter 23 anticipate a tragic end to those with whom God speaks it. A state of disaster has now been pronounced, and it will not be reversed. This chapter has the most terrible content. Someone has said it is the most terrible and sustained denunciation in all of the New Testament. Eight times our Lord pronounces woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. One person has said in rapid fire succession like a thunderstorm that is unleashing its power with lightning and loud thunder. Another said, it's like a rolling thunder of God's wrath. And still another says, like a series of lightning strikes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. And still another. It's though like lightning It illuminates the sky while it's hitting home its target. This chapter is both illuminating as when lightning illuminates the night sky, and it is fearful as when the thunder which accompanies those lightning breathes the condemnation of divine judgment. In verse 13 and following, Jesus now turns from warning others about the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrisy, which is the common theme throughout the entire chapter, hypocrisy. And now he turns to confronting the scribes and the Pharisees directly, head on, face to face, in the courtyard of the temple. The tone of this passage is radically sharp. One thing we should be aware of and learn here and now, if we do not have it yet, is that the God of heaven is not always nice. He's gracious, He's merciful, and He will have compassion on whom we will have compassion. And he will pour out the fury of his wrath 
on those who reject him. Many today would judge Jesus quite wrongly as lacking compassion or kindness if they were in the presence of him as he was speaking this in the courtyard. You might remember that there were children in the courtyard who were were praising him and crying out, Hosanna, King of David. And the Pharisees had asked Jesus to silence them, for they are praising you as God. And he would not. They questioned his authority, and the crowd gathered around, and he began speaking. His disciples were there, children were there, parents were there. It was a time of the, the feast of Passover, and the crowds were, were mounting in the city and swelling. But particularly in the court, yard that day, he had quite an audience, among whom were the scribes and the Pharisees. And this eightfold thundering of woes decried against the scribe and the Pharisees here is accompanied by descriptions of their hypocrisy. It also included other insulting epithets. Child of hell, he would call them in verse 15. Twice in verse 26 and 24, he called them blind guides. Twice he calls them fools and blind. He calls them in verse 26, blind Pharisees. In 27, whitewashed tombs. Verse 33, serpents and brood of vipers. He accused them of misleading and being deceptive. He accused them of violence and greed. He accused them of all uncleanness. He accused them them of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he accused them of murdering the prophets and the righteous. I dare say that any of us here today who would have been in the presence of Jesus that day would have felt extremely uncomfortable as he confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. I dare say that if we're confronted with the gravity of the situation, we might feel a little uncomfortable even now. These woes of Christ's verdict of judgment upon the scribes and the Pharisees and even by extension to the whole nation of Israel who followed their teachings in rejecting Christ as their Messiah. are sent out with great gravity but unleashing with certainty upon the target to whom they were aimed. These woes are grouped in three groups. And we'll be covering each of these three groups in subsequent weeks. There's eight of them. The first group is in verses 13 through 15, which we'll look at today. The second group is in verse 16 through 24. We'll look at that in a subsequent week. And the last grouping of these woes together is in verses Uh, 25 through uh, 28. The last woe given in verse 29 is like somewhat of a, a culmination, climax of a final verdict that he is giving to the scribes and the Pharisees and to the nation of Israel who follow them. 
This morning as we look at this first group of woes in verses 13 through 15, this group denounces false religion and a false view of God that keeps people out of the kingdom. In verses 13 through 15, I want to preach this morning on God's judgment of false religion. God's judgment of false religion. People in a fallen world, such as you and I, are religious by nature. God has put an eternity in our heart, the book of Ecclesiastes said. We, we have a religious spirit by nature in us, by divine design. But in this fallen world where the image of God in us is marred, that is, sense of religion is distorted And we tend to make our own religion rather than accepting what God has revealed in His Word. And that is why the Scripture says we are at enmity against God in our minds and by our wicked works. That's true for every one of us born into this world before we are regenerate by the Spirit of God. You may disagree with that statement, but the Scripture is, Thus saith the Lord, it is true. We want to make God palatable for our own consumption rather than accepting Him on His terms and how He has revealed Himself to us. And Christ thunders this judgment upon all man-centered approaches and false religions, even those that are preached in churches today. So for our As we begin in looking at verses 13 through 15, I want us to consider what is the primary purpose of religion? What is the main purpose? Some people think that religion, all religions are valid. You maybe have talked to somebody, perhaps maybe at one time you thought this, that, well, Christianity is one of the ways in which we can get to heaven and one of the ways in which we can approach God. But there are other ways that are valid as well. Perhaps we're all climbing up the same mountain, but from different sides. But when we get to the top, we're all at the same place together. Anybody hear of that particular statement when you're talking to people? It's a very common one because they do not want to hear the exclusivity of the Christian world of what Christ is and who God has revealed Himself as. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved except Jesus Christ. It is as exclusive as God Himself. Well, other people think that religion is something that makes people nice. And it makes society better. And they embrace different variations of Christianity based upon what makes them nice. Consider even how people shop for a church. Oftentimes people come into a church and they begin evaluating. And they sample other people around in the church. And they're thinking, you know, would these be a a nice and a kind kind of people to be around if I made this church my home? Or what, what was the kind of music that was being played? Is it my style of music? Do I go shopping for a church based upon the style of music? 
Or was the pastor nice and personable? Or do they have programs for my children or for the kids or for my senior parents? Or what was the atmosphere like when I went into the church? Is the church service length okay or is it too long? Um, many people shop for church based on their own family. Uh, is, does it provide a comfortable place for my family and me? Is it a warm and receiving, comfortable environment? Now, now those questions in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong, and they, but a lot of people are shopping for a church based upon those kinds of approaches as being primary. But the purpose of religion isn't primarily those things. It's not primarily about making people more nice and society a better place. Not primarily that. It has its place. In fact, false religions would be normally upset with presenting Jesus as the Bible here presents him. In this vindictive wrath against all of the religions or false views of him that keep people out of the kingdom, Jesus breathes these strong woes of divine sentence and verdict against them. That would be quite offensive to false religions. But the primary purpose of religion is not primarily to make nice people, but it is to acquaint people with God, the God of heaven, the God who has revealed himself to us. It is about God and his kingdom. It is about his glory. But there's a kind of religion that does the opposite of what the Bible says about true religion. And three woes Jesus gives here against that kind of false religion. He condemns it in the strongest of terms. He directs the woes against the teachers of this false religion. And the spiritual teachers have a significant spiritual influence upon the ones whom they teach. Spiritual teachers are dealing with spiritual and eternal destinies of the souls that sit under their ministry. And that is why James tells us in James 3.1 that my brethren, let there not become of you many teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now we have three verses that gives us three reasons for these divine woes. Number one in verse 13, because it shuts off the kingdom to others. And number two, we'll pick up in verse 15, it makes their converts twice a son of hell. And number three, which I'll come back to in verse 14, is because religion is often used for wicked purposes. Let's consider it in that order, verse 13, 15, then come back to verse 14. We'll spend most of the time in verse 13. See, the wrong kind of religion shuts people off from the kingdom. 
Verse 13 says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Remember the word hypocrite has this deceptive element to it. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. When people are inclined to enter into Christ's kingdom, that seems to be the impetus here. The, when people are inclined to enter the kingdom, it's the wrong kind of religion that discourages them from doing so. Some cases it actually changes their direction so that in the end they arrive at a completely opposite destination to the one that they thought that they had hoped for. And that is the strongest indictment that the Lord gives to them. It shuts the kingdom off from people. So the influence and the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, and I would say by extension to false prophets today, from false teachers and preachers today, and from those who themselves are occupying, even this morning across our land, the pulpit are not only not going into the kingdom themselves, but they are shutting it off from those who would enter into it. Causing people to change their minds about what they thought about it. Now how do people shut people off from the kingdom? How do people shut others out of the kingdom? There were several ways through the history of this time in Jesus' short ministry on the earth in which we see the scribes and the Pharisees in action and even the Jews themselves. But one of the ways in which they would shut other people out of the kingdom is they would question the things that Jesus taught. They would question. Jesus would say something and then they would call it into question. Is that not an old way of doing things? Has God really said, Satan would say in Genesis 3. It's an old tactic, but the, the Pharisees were spot on in, in following through with this. For example, in John 6, 42, Jews were raising a question about Jesus coming down from heaven. Jesus was saying that he has come down from heaven. Verse 41 of that chapter said, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? See, they're bringing into question a statement that he emphatically said. Their question here has an implication to it that discourages people to believe what Jesus had just said about himself. Another example is in Mark 2, 7, when Jesus heals the paralytic, and you might remember the story well, because he couldn't walk, so his friends bringing up on the roof, and they cut a hole in the roof, and they let him down in it. And he tells the man who is before him, he says, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" And the scribes and the Pharisees question his statement. What does this man blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, a question 
that would lead people in a discouragement against the things that Jesus had just said. It is very true that only one can forgive sins, and that is God alone. And that's who Jesus was. See, the intent is to discredit the messenger, and in doing so, they influence others to discount what Jesus said. That shuts the door to the kingdom of those who would be entering into it. It changes their mind. It causes question about the messenger as well as the message. And there's many modern examples to this that you need to be aware of. You ever seen any documentaries on biblical things? There's documentaries on Noah's Ark. There's documentaries on the Ark of the Covenant. There's documentaries on all kinds of things out there. And they will then put up on the documentaries and beautiful film and videography and, and have you know, wonderful, attractive presentations. And then they will cut to the expert, the theologian and historian of such and such of university or seminary, Right? And then that person, as they show these quotes, they will, he'll say something like this. Well, Jesus said things that caused people to misunderstand and think that he was claiming to be God. But, da 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 Right? Subtle. But eternal. Eternal. Or, quote, in its desire to glorify Jesus, the early church talked about him as if he had no earthly father. Or, quote, Jesus thought he could change the world. End of quote. They would say things, these kinds of things, that would call into question the literal truthfulness of exactly what the record says Jesus claimed about himself and what he taught. But they would bring into question the very things. And when people do that, it begins barring up the door to the kingdom of God against those who would enter in and who may be interested in this topic, who is inquiring into the veracity of Jesus. And it keeps those people out. But Jesus said, I am the door to the kingdom. You have to enter by me. Meaning that to enter the kingdom is receiving with all of your heart what Jesus taught about himself, how the Bible has revealed him, and what is necessary to enter into that kingdom. And when someone calls into question what Jesus taught about the door, it is as if they are nailing up barriers across it to keep people from entering. And then it becomes even more serious. They not only call into question to discredit the message and the messenger, but eventually they discourage people and they oppose people who take his teaching literally. Again, there are numerous biblical examples of this kind of thing and even modern-day examples of this kind of thing. When Jesus was casting out demons, 
They said he cast them out by by, by, by. <laughs> I'm gonna get a running start again on that one. You know where I'm going with that. He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. To the man born blind, and Jesus heals the man. He says, this man can't be from God because he healed him on the Sabbath. They start making not only questions about him, but they start making declarations. But if you'll listen to Jesus and what Jesus has said, he's going to caution you about any other way and every other way other than the way that he tells you. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread who has come down from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the God of heaven. I am Christ, your Messiah. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the only way. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If Jesus was speaking like this, all of the religions, whether it be the religions of the world or whether it be religions that are in the guise of Christianity, but all of the religions that bring the exclusivity of Christ into question are to be condemned in the strongest of terms. Woe! Because it counts eternal souls. And turns them away from the kingdom. I would caution each one of us to be very careful. With disgruntled people. Who leave a biblical church. And then talk negatively about it along the way. By the way, I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about any biblical church in which people leave in a disgruntled way and they begin talking negatively about the church. I want to warn you to be very cautious. Do not get close to that vortex. It's not every time, but sometimes... When people leave in such a way, they discredit the leaders who have faithfully preached and taught the Word of God, and they bring into question their teachings and what they taught and preached. But if a preacher has been faithful with his preaching, bringing into question the preacher's preaching brings into question the teachings of Jesus. And be very careful not to give audience to these disgruntled people because they may influence you away from the kingdom. This is a warning to us. You know, oftentimes there are unregenerate people within our fold, tares among the wheat. We've had them here. And they begin complaining And while they were among us, we didn't know that they were unregenerate. 
We might have even thought they had a reason, or maybe we could see some of what they were saying. Might have given them an ear for a little time, a little sympathy perhaps. But we didn't know that they were unregenerate at the time. But as 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. This happens in every church, every congregation. But they had been heading in the wrong direction all the while they were with us. And they try to influence others against the teaching of the church to try to dissuade and discredit people away from the kingdom of God and do not give an audience or an ear to their their complaints. We have had several members of our church leave in a disgruntled fashion who later became full-blown atheists. We've had one that is a Um, an outspoken Satan worshiper. If you back the reel up a little bit and he was among you and he begins complaining about something, discrediting the messenger or the message, be careful. He was never of us. And while leaving the church, they always try to influence others away from the kingdom. That is why the enemy plants the tares among the wheat. I'm not trying to have you to question anybody in the pew this morning. I am giving you a caution that the Lord himself gave to those who would discredit the teaching of the gospel in any fashion that would dissuade people away from a faithful church over reasons contrary to the very truth. Be careful for those who undermine the message. Does it mean that you can't disagree with the pastor? We should get alone and just see if thus saith the word of God. Be a good Berean, absolutely. But be careful of the spirit of controversy that then undermines the message and the messenger. It's a spirit that you need to discern, as John would tell us. And be careful, because if others listen and follow, the kingdom may be shut out from them as well. Now, Jesus gave a strong judging indictment to those who shut up the kingdom of God to others. Second of all, in verse 15, proponents of these false religions can be quite zealous to make one single convert. It says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, You make him twice a son of hell as you are. False religion and those who have an agenda can be very zealous. They can travel land and sea and go about on all kinds of trouble to win but one simple convert that will sympathize, hear them and follow them and agree with them. You see this with 
people riding their bicycles up and down the streets. You see them coming even out into the holler with, with uh, their, uh, their Bibles and their Book of Mormon in their hands. They give years of their life to travel land and sea to get but one convert. And when they do, they make him twice a son of hell. Now think about that. Isn't that something that Jesus is talking this way? False religion can hardly bear that Jesus talked in these terms. But our Lord did speak strongly and unsparingly for anyone who would undermine His work, His Word, and the will of God to the glory of His Father for what He came to do to save sinners. And anybody that's going to shut the door, close the door, distort the door, and to push people away and back from Jesus will have this wrath upon God, of God upon them. Now think about it for just a moment. If someone were threatening your children with severe and life-threatening threats, would you, what kind of spirit would you have? Are you going to be complacent? Might you be soft-spoken? Might you try to negotiate with the, the danger? Would you be accepting? Would you be nice? If there was a real threat and the damages to their life and their, their well-being is in great, severe danger, you would warn them in the stoutest of terms in order to get their attention to those who may be complacent. See, false religion never turns people to Christ it never converts them to Jesus, but it converts them to itself. And that's why they go around talking about it and presenting it in the way that they do. And Jesus hated these systems. And we should hate them too. Anyone who follows a different religious commitment other than what the Bible says, no matter how well-intentioned they may be, are enemies of the kingdom of God and of Christ. Period. Well, the last point that we look to in this context is given to us back in verse 14. And he condemns wicked intentions behind some of the false teachers. Now, not all, but... Sometimes, and even very often, false religion is intentionally cloaking something that is very evil. See, verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Particularly in that culture, but it's not... Uh, without its application to us today, widows were the most vulnerable group, widows and orphans. But widows particularly were very vulnerable. They had no male protection. They were often aged. They needed help in a very special way. 
They were in a dependent position. And widows are looking for others to trust. And they need to feel that they can be trusting of someone. And when men then have strong motives underneath, their religion then becomes a cloak and they can easily deceive the vulnerable widow. And so they for, as the verse says, they can for pretense make long prayers. Oh, how godly he is, the widow would say. I can, I can trust him. He's a, he's a godly man. Listen to how he prays. And to persuade these vulnerable people to deceive them, they show this false piety and devotion to God, but the intent is to get to that widow's life savings and to her house and to all that she has. And it cloaks this covetousness with piety. Shrouds it, shrouds it with garbs of piety. I, I don't think uh, you have to look very long on TV, on a particular channel, before you can see exactly what's going on behind the false religion and the amount of covetousness and greed that they are accumulating for themselves in the name of Christ shrouded with this false piety, but behind it are very wicked and evil men and motives. Paul warned about this against peddling the Word of God. The Old Testament warned over and over about this kind of thing. Even Samuel, before he died, said, if I owe anybody anything, let him speak now. I will repay it. I want to make sure everything is clear. This is what it means to be a blameless man. There's a lot of religion today that's going on for wicked purposes, taking advantage of the vulnerable for monetary gain, for greed, for covetousness. And you know what? Many fall prey to their deceptions because they too are deceived and blinded by the evil one, and so they embrace these false religions. And Jesus is going to be very firm with his judgment. Whoa! Eight times. A series of three. Whoa! 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 The thunderstorm of God's wrath. His divine verdict for keeping people out of the kingdom. For discouraging people away from the truth. Bringing into question the message and the messengers. We'll find at the end of the chapter how they murdered the prophets. And finally the son. And Christ's judgments are very severe toward anyone who undermines his message and his faithful messengers. Anyone who would dissuade or discourage others from coming into the kingdom will receive the thundering wrath of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
But Christ is the door. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. If you enter in by the door, there shall no man be able to take that away. And He will secure all of those that the Father has given to Him, and He will by no means lose a single one. He will save to the uttermost those who come into the door and by Him, and He will give them life, and He will give it to them abundantly. Christ is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. And God has sent His beloved Son so that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you're here today apart from the kingdom, there is this safety. There is this invitation to joy and life that is everlasting. He is the door. Enter by Him. By calling upon Him. And receiving Him by faith, calling Him your Lord. He is the Son of God, the one who has died and was raised the third day, ascended on high, sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is the great King, who is the Judge, who is the Creator, who is the Savior. But woe to those who try to discourage people away from Him, who is the only way, And there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only way, and you have revealed him to us with your Spirit in the Word. How thankful we are that you have kept us from being deceived, that have you not removed the blinders of our eyes, we would have been following the evil one who has deceived the eyes of our heart. But you have revealed Christ in His glory. We see Him high and lifted up. We see His glory today through the eyes of faith in the Scriptures of how you've revealed Him to us. And this is truth. Sanctify us today in the truth. We thank you for the great salvation you have given us in Him. And we pray if there's one here today that does not truly know you as Lord and Savior, that your Spirit would regenerate that heart and not give any rest to that soul until he turns his or her life to Christ. We pray through the preaching of the Word today that your saints would be sensitive to disgruntle people and false teachers that would dissuade them away from Christ and to attenuate the very truth that you have expressed in your written word. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us in this beautiful truth, conforming us more into the image of our dear Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.